Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good day and welcome to the, the day after the Canadian election. Uh, we we're all uh, uh, Canadians. We're all enjoying a peaceful summer in mid-August in Canada, listening to the loons cooking the hot dogs and marshmallows on the fire and barbecuing with family when suddenly uh, a federal election was thrust on us by a prime minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, who riding high in the polls based on a large level of or high level of public support for his government's handling of COVID, had great confidence entering the election. It was sunny ways and sunny days. What could go wrong? Uh, in fact, quite a few things could go wrong on the way to election day uh, in Canada in 2020. 21 to help us sort through uh, uh, not just some of the political analysis, but more importantly, the economic analysis in terms of this call today and the impact on the future of the Canadian economy and on your wallet uh, and your family's financial well-being. We are joined today by two uh, real experts from uh, BMO Financial Group. We have with us today Doug Porter, who is Chief Economist for BMO Financial Group. And we're also joined by Earl Davis, who is Head of Fixed Income for BMO Global Asset Management. My name is Scott Bryson. Uh, I am uh, uh, Vice Chair of BMO Capital Markets. I'm delighted to join uh, you today and to help kick off this discussion. I know a little bit about politics, um, having been elected uh, seven times in the magnificent riding of Kings Hanson in Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia, twice as a progressive conservative and five times as a liberal. So you could argue that I have more than one uh, partisan lens to uh, view some of these events. Um, I will very briefly uh, review some of the political side of this, uh, but recognizing there's an awful lot of analysis out there the day after, we will quickly shift into the economic impact of uh, the decisions Canadian citizens have made in this election. Um, first of all, in terms of, of, of my background, uh, I served um, in Paul Martin's uh, Liberal cabinet. I also served in uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, Liberal cabinet in economic portfolios and um, in opposition over the years with a number of economic portfolios. And uh, one of the things that uh, having noticed in this election is a, a real shift in economic priorities. We'll get back to that in a moment. When the, when the election was initially called, uh, the prime minister, I think in the first week, uh, the government um, had a, had struggled to explain the rationale for the election. That stuck longer than uh, 
It sometimes does in these uh, types of election scenarios, but the government did struggle for a while at the time. And, and as well, I would say in the first week or so of the election, uh, new, relatively new uh, conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, um, was putting forward a moderate progressive uh, face on his leadership, um, working quite hard to reposition the Conservative Party to a more centrist perspective. I think he was getting some traction at that point, uh, but what the, the criticism always is that there is a hidden agenda. That's the accusation uh, on certain issues, whether it is assault rifles or um, on uh, other social issues. In this case, it wasn't really a hidden agenda. Right in the platform uh, was the uh, commitment to repealing the ban on assault rifles. Now, uh, Aaron O'Toole, uh, conservative leader, did struggle with that uh, for a period, but I do believe that that was a bit of a turning point in terms of of having inflicted some damage on his positioning as a centrist. Um, beyond that, um, I would also uh, say that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberals intended to go into this election, I think, depending on uh, receiving a lot of support from Canadians in recognition of the government's performance on COVID. Uh, that is the same kind of expectation that uh, Winston Churchill had in 1945 when he entered the election against Clement Attlee a few months after he had won the Second World War de defending uh, uh, the free world. Um, and ultimately, uh, people voted for Clement Attlee because he had a plan for social housing. And the lesson there is that people don't really vote based on what you've already done for them. They tend to vote based on what they expect you to do for them next. Um, voters were also noticeably cranky in this election. And we saw, I think, a level of demonstration um, and protest uh, and a fairly ugly side to this election, uh, generated in part by the anti-vaccination forces, uh, but but there was a, a discerning uh, or discernible uh, 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 crankiness to this election. And um, later in the election, another turning point, I believe, from the conservatives' perspective. Uh, that was damaging was uh, the Alberta COVID situation. As that erupted, it made it uh, very uncomfortable for um, Aaron O'Toole. Um, Jason Kenney had been a significant supporter helping Aaron O'Toole win the conservative leadership. Uh, the challenge in this case was that uh, his Premier Kenney's uh, 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 record on COVID was in the spotlight unfavorably uh, during a, a serious, uh, well, a, a real COVID crisis during the election, which helped renew uh, fears of COVID and bring back the discussion somewhat to the uh, Liberals' home ice, uh, which was back to COVID. So I think that played a role as well. Um, one thing uh, before we uh, uh, I'm mentioning uh, the conservative movement and the very significant uh, focus that the leader put on 
getting his party into the center, center, or trying to get his party into the center in this election. He was fighting on two fronts. Aaron O'Toole was fighting, uh, of course, and for the votes of the general electorate and trying to move his party to the center on social issues. But then he was also fighting within his own party against some of the elements of the old reform party. Um, and uh, in addition to that, this new political force led by Maxime Bernier, second election, but a significant uh, bump in percentage of the popular vote for the People's Party of Canada. Some reports are that uh, seven or potentially eight seats uh, could have been won had the People Party, People's Party of Canada not siphoned off votes from Conservatives in tight ridings. But it does speak to a challenge that the Conservative Party faces now. Um, and one of the, the real challenges on an ongoing basis that plagues Conservative movements in Canada is that the right hand doesn't always know what the far right hand uh, is doing. And uh, we will see how that plays out in this uh, parliament and in, in conservative leadership uh, 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 politics or in the coming days. One thing, um, uh, so one point I'd like to make is that um, there seems to be, and I'm going to turn this over to Doug and Earl in a moment, but there seems to be a, a bit of a shift in how Canadians view the economy uh, and a shift uh, to what would be described traditionally as to the, the left on um, some of the big economic questions. Back uh, in 2000 and well, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when uh, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin were paying down uh, the deficits and eliminating deficits and paying down debt uh, and cutting taxes, the NDP were only at 9 or 10 percent at that time. Today, we have a federal liberal government under the leadership of Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, um, whose tax policy and spending uh, policy um, is certainly different from uh, uh, Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien's governments, and one could argue is much closer to uh, the, the space typically occupied by NDP on economic matters. Yet at the same time, the NDP <clears throat> are at around 18%. So if you combine federal, liberal, and NDP uh, popular vote, you've got 50% of Canadians having voted for parties with um, uh, a very uh, uh, much a free spending um, uh, approach to the fiscal, uh, the fiscal management of our country. And I'd like to turn this over, and I'm going to start with uh, Doug. Um, one, of, uh, one of the positive things that I think a lot of us saw in the, the campaign, and it's important to try to identify some positive things in these, these uh, situations, was that um, most Canadians voted for, in fact, all can, political parties, I think, except for the PPC, actually had plans, serious plans on the environment and carbon pricing. So there seems to be a consensus on um, uh, what we should be doing to for the future of the, of the planet. To hear more about this election's impact on the future of your wallet and the likely economic policy uh, decisions resulting from uh, this election uh, scenario, I'm going to turn things over to Doug and Erwin. I'll start off with Doug. Doug, um, 
uh, how's this, you know, for Canadians watching this, many of us would have liked to have seen a more robust discussion on the economy, uh, on things like, you know, spending and fiscal policy and growth policy and tax policy in a more fulsome way during this election. We didn't see a lot of that. So looking at the proposals brought forth by parties in the election and the result of the election, what do you expect uh, to see the policy mix in the coming weeks and potentially in a first budget? Doug? Well, thank you. Yes, well, thank, thank you, you, Scott, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so from a very big picture, I, I, I would say we definitely have a political status quo, but I don't believe that we necessarily have an economic status quo because as you touched on on your opening remarks, uh, one key feature of this campaign was basically every party was looking at cranking up spending in uh, in the years ahead. Even you know even the Conservatives had a relatively I would say generous uh, fiscal plan over over the next few years. There was really no uh, drive whatsoever to to reduce the deficit, and that's that's despite the fact that uh, revenues have actually been coming in better than expected. But essentially, you know every major party's platform looked at uh, different ways to to spend. Uh, that revenue windfall we've uh, we've seen this year, and so ultimately, while there, you know, isn't likely to be a big change in the uh, in the deficit outlook, I think there is is going to be quite a bit more uh, fiscal spending over over the next couple of years. Um, I would largely echo your view that uh, while there was you know some discussion of of the economy, it, it definitely took a backseat to uh, to other issues during this uh, the, this cam campaign. Unfortunately, I don't think there was really much serious discussion and. You know how to strengthen the uh, the competitiveness or the productivity of the the Canadian economy. I don't think there was really that much of a of a growth agenda. There was a lot of talk about redistribution, uh, but there wasn't a lot of talk uh, about how to fundamentally strengthen the economy. But uh, you know, to to your point, I think the the main takeaway is there there has been a discernible shift, uh, basically acceptance of relatively large deficits. Um, we are looking at the deficit to. To come down and come down fairly aggressively over the next year as the economy more fully reopens, hopefully, uh, but we're still lo likely looking at uh, something on the order of about a sixty billion dollar deficit next year, uh, almost I would say at a minimum. And just keep in mind that's about twice where we were before the the pandemic began. So for me, that was really the the key takeaway, is that um, we we are looking at uh, fundamentally more fiscal spending over the the next couple of years. Now, of course, we're in a minority government, uh, so. You know, all the proposals that we saw during the uh, the campaign have to be taken with a little bit of a grain, grain of salt. But certainly there was a lot of overlap in terms of some of the main priorities between the uh, the Liberals and the, and the NDP. And I think they, they will ultimately find uh, quite a bit of common ground, you know, whether it's on things like uh, like child care or on uh, some of their taxation policies. Uh, and, and again, I think the net result is uh, is even more fiscal spending above and beyond what we saw in this year's budget. Thanks, Doug. Now, Earl. Thanks, Doug. Earl, um, uh, looking at the uh, results of the election, and during the election, we saw some elevated uh, inflation numbers. Um, all this stimulus, uh, you know, which it seems like this bigot is actually turning more uh, open, not not less so as the result of this election. Um, on top of the inflationary pressures we have now, uh, wh what do you see the impact of this 
ramped up stimulus uh, in the current economic environment? What do you see uh, the impact being, for instance, on uh, on bank policy, uh, monetary policy moving forward, and uh, some of the other impacts on the broader economy? Uh, yeah, I'll answer your question directly, but I want to put things in context first. I think it's important um, to highlight the S&P affirmed Canada's AAA rating in the spring, and they did that in light of the higher deficits. And I, I think that gave all the parties basically a pass on talking about uh, the economy because S&P said basically you're good for now. They actually said two years. Uh, so I think that was an important message locally and uh, globally. Uh, but they did say it, we're still at risk for a uh, downgrade after two years, and that's dependent on fiscal health, which is a function of spending and a function of, uh, of revenues and revenues and, and tax policy. Revenues is growth and tax policies, basically, driven by that. So I think it's important to remember that S&P gave everyone a pass this election, but I do believe it will come back onto the next election. Uh, speaking and, and carrying on Doug's point in regards to economic uh, political stability, but lack of economic stability and a distribution of wealth, I fully agree with that. I think we're undergoing a, a secular change, a change that will last 5, 10, 20 years. We're removed from a period of uh, wealth accumulation. You know, you, you save through your stocks and your bonds. And you know what? Past 20 years, that's been great. Um, to wealth distribution. Now the baby boomers are retiring. They're cashing in their stocks, their bonds. And wealth distribution from government, you know, um, with the equality divide, that's what you get, you know, with that at its widest gap in, in, in decades. Uh, you know, you get more populist centrist uh, measures or the axis shifts to the left, as, as, as we've seen uh, in this election. And the implications of um, wealth distribution are higher inflation. Uh, higher volatility and higher interest rates. So, you know, not to say it'll happen uh, next month or even next year, but this is a five, 10, 20 year phenomena that I think we're just now starting. You know, so, so, input, yeah. So, one more thing monetary policy, I do see higher rates because now if inflation moves from transitory to uh, sustainable inflation, then the central banks are behind the curve. So, they have to raise uh, rates higher to markets discounting. The risk is they raise them higher and faster than the market's discounting. And that's where you get enhanced volatility. It's not my base case, but I think it's a real uh, probability with uh, the probabilities increasing week by week. In the current uh, environment, uh, that additional stimulus, if it, if it does, uh, you know, I mean, it, it will inevitably uh, strengthen or uh, bolster inflationary pressures uh, and higher rates. The, is there a risk that, ironically, the stimulus designed uh, to help the Canadian economy drives monetary policy responses, which actually ultimately make it more difficult uh, to create uh, private sector growth uh, and jobs in Canada? Is there a risk of getting that fiscal balance uh, and um, wrong and potentially driving a, a monetary policy environment that's not conducive to growth and jobs. Yeah, so I, this this cycle is like no other we've seen. And I think policymakers have to respond differently than they have in the past. An issue we've been trying to pound home is that demand is not an, a problem in, in this uh, cycle, in, in this recovery. Uh, I would say actually the opposite is the case. We, you know, in some sectors, we actually have too much demand. 
Um, in, in fact, we're facing supply challenges left, right, and center. You know, whether it's automakers can't get parts, uh, retailers can't get goods on the shelves, restaurants can't get workers to, you know, to man them. Uh, to, to man the kitchens, it's 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 basically a supply constraint that that we're facing, and so absolutely the wrong answer at this point is to pour more stimulus on an economy that's facing supply challenges. What you get is when you pour extra stimulus on a you know supply constrained economy is you get more inflation, and just one very narrow example of that I can give you is in the housing market. You know, obviously we face pretty clear supply constraints in the housing market. We've had a ton of stimulus poured on that sector and we had house uh, prices explode. Now that's an extreme example, um, but I think essentially that's what we're seeing, you know, right, right across the, the economy. And that's why we're looking at the highest inflation rate since the early 2000s and the highest core inflation rate in, in almost 30 years. Uh, we do believe that some of the uh, the run-up in inflation that we've seen will will pass. You know, clearly the kind of spike we've seen in things like auto prices are not going to persist for uh, for much longer, but on balance, we we believe that uh, even in in a relatively positive scenario, we're probably looking at average inflation of close to three percent or a bit above, both this year and next. I am concerned that uh, you know just pouring money, uh, pouring more stimulus on this economy does risk somewhat higher inflation over the uh, the next year. And um, Earl, uh, in terms of, and uh, not all stimulus uh, is created equally. Uh, I'd be interested in your perspective and Doug's perspective, actually, uh, starting with you, Earl, on what government spending should focus on if the objective is long-term growth uh, and competitiveness. So, in in other words, what are the types of initiatives that uh, the government can invest in or spend on uh, that is more accretive to the economy uh, and potentially doesn't have the same inflationary pressures that could could have a dampening impact through monetary policy response. Uh, Earl, we'll start with you, and I'd be interested in your thoughts and and then get a, uh, turn over to Doug for, for his thoughts on if you're giving ideas to the new finance minister um, and uh, uh, parliamentarians, uh, I'd be interested in uh, what what you would like to see them focus on. Thank you, Scott. Uh, uh, the, yes, thank you. The theoretical answer is uh, is easy. The practical answer is the where the challenge is. Theoretical answer is you put money what in items and things that increase your productivity. That means you get uh, less inflation. Uh, examples of that are infrastructure. You make your roads better, uh, so people are getting to work quicker, so they're actually working longer. I think another one, which is arguable from some people, but I think it increases uh, productivity, is childcare, uh, which they are proposing uh, to do in regards to getting more uh, people into the workforce, specifically women into the workforce. That increases productivity. So you want to see the government spending where where you're actually going to get productivity, get more growth going forward. And I think that's partially what they're trying to push for, get to that virtuous cycle of growth. Uh, Once they get there, then they could take away some of the stimulus because it becomes a self-sustaining economy, you know. But to Doug's point, a lot of the the practical easy uh, answer is difficult because of the supply constraints. You know, you could put the money there into infrastructure, but then who's going to work to do do it? And then where does that money go? It goes into non-productive items, and that's what causes inflation, and that's what the risk is to the market. 
Yeah, I think from a from a short term view, obviously we you know we have to deal with the uh, the pandemic and the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. That really is job number one for uh, for the finance minister. Um, and but but really the next uh, the next challenge beyond that in the you know next one to two years is is basically weaning the economy off the extraordinary uh, stimulus and support we've seen and getting uh, fiscal finances in in relatively firmer shape. Uh, what you know, one one point I've I've been making is uh, an an issue is that the you know the longer it takes to get finances back into reasonable shape, the the more vulnerable we are to to the next uh, crisis or the next big issue that uh, that the global economy uh, faces. And we we know something, you know, will will arrive in the next who knows two five ten ten years. But we know there are going to be some new and different challenges down the line. We have to we have to set the uh, the groundwork for for that. Um, Above and beyond the pandemic and, and the aftermath, I, I really do think the the focus has got to be, you know, turn back to uh, to the innovation uh, angle. Try, you know, and and the the shift that we're going to see ultimately, um, you know, re- ultimately reducing our our, uh, our our dependence on uh, on on the resource sector, in particular the oil and gas sector, um, and and basically uh, strengthen the the productivity of of the economy. Um, that's, that's easier said than done, but I really think that's, uh, that's where the focus has to be over, over the medium term. Um, Doug, Doug, uh, thanks very much, Doug. And, uh, uh, so on one of the fiscal concerns that some people have, uh, is, is the rising level of indebtedness of Canadian provinces alongside of, you know, a big deficits on the federal side. The combined uh, uh, fiscal indebtedness of federal and provincial governments and the growth of that coming out of COVID, um, is the economic community and our financial markets mindful of the combined uh, fiscal exposure of both provinces and the federal government? Because not everybody considers the provincial um, uh, uh, fiscal situations as thoroughly when they're looking at uh, at the Canadian economy. So I'd be interested in how concerned should we be about the extremely indebted provinces and territories at this time? Yes, th- thank you, Scott. I think that is a somewhat underplayed uh, factor whenever we talk about Canadian government finances. And of course, Ottawa loves to to point to their own uh, relatively contained debt to GDP ratio, but the reality is, is what matters uh, for our overall credit worthiness is the the total government uh, debt to GDP. And on from that angle, yes, we are mostly stronger than uh, than the rest of the G7, but we're not in a different league. Um, we we are somewhat firmer, but uh, you know when you combine the the provinces in the mix, we're not extraordinarily stronger than than other uh, countries. And I think. You know that's that's one of the reasons why I am somewhat concerned about this uh, this underlying deterioration that we've seen in uh, in federal finances, is because ultimately when we look you know five ten years down the line, some of the provinces are going to need help. Um, you know some face uh, very serious uh, demographic issues longer term and uh, and the the healthcare spending that uh, that goes with that. Uh, there there is an imbalance in uh, you know in. in in the sort of the spending pressures that the provinces will face and that the federal government faces over over the medium term, and ultimately we we do have to take the provinces into account. Now, some of the good news over the pandemic is the provinces were helped a lot by the federal government. Certainly, the federal government took the lead in terms of uh, pandemic spending, and uh, for the most part, provincial finances did not deteriorate nearly to the same extent that the uh, the federal government did. 
But still, I think whenever we talk about uh, Canada's overall fiscal health, we do have to take the provinces into account. Thanks. Uh, thanks and let me continue on on that just sure. a quick second is that the international investors still are <laughs> provincial product is still very much in demand here. And I think it falls on the point that, that Doug said that compared to the other G7s, we're still relatively good. So the spreads for provincial product are at uh, tights, basically, there, which says there's a lot of demand for the product. And I think that's a comparator thing. I think, yes, uh, you know what, uh, we will have to be more concerned on the next downturn. Uh, but for now, if they have the ability to, to improve growth and, and uh, build the economy, we'd be, uh, I think they have a, a, a good, good possibility of, of continuing being able to issue these tight spreads. Thank you. Great. Um, Earl, uh, you had mentioned earlier that you're a, a believer in early learning and child care uh, as, a, um, as something that, that strengthens uh, the you know, access to the workforce, equality of opportunity, all and 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 it it as a as a public policy along with infrastructure. Another uh, public policy that uh, you know has emerged as being very important to uh, get us through COVID has been Serb um, uh, program, Serb type programs to help bridge people through this. Now, talking to uh, the business community, including the small small businesses right across Canada, I'm hearing that it's it's really tough to get workers now. Um, that there is a, a real issue in terms of uh, having the ability to attract and retain the employers you need to run your businesses. Um, any advice to the government uh, on some of the uh, programs and uh, uh, and funding that was established to help get businesses and families through COVID. Um, what, what would your advice be moving forward in terms of ratcheting some of that back, getting more into a, uh, a private sector sustainable economy and weaning ourselves off some of these programs? Is there a risk that we keep them in too long that it's really distortionary of labor markets and and in, impactful negatively on productivity. Yeah, it's more than a risk because we're actually seeing the impact of it right now. You know, anecdotally, you have a lot of uh, fast food restaurants that can't hire enough employees and they can't even open because they can't hire uh, employees. So I think it's it's a, it's a matter of tapering the serve, uh, if not ending it, and and not looking to cut spending, just redistribute that elsewhere. And I, I think there's a very strong argument from. Uh, both in the economy, uh, economic perspective, as well as uh, individual labor perspective, you know, they still will be able to uh, to to have a wage and to have a good wage uh, with minimum wages in, increasing, um, you know, may not be the equivalent of CERB, but it, it's still a, a, a good wage. So I think it's important to taper that uh, to accelerate the growth of our economy. Great. Um, Doug, uh, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Coming out of this, the uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, the signals are fairly consistent coming out of this election directionally, uh, I would say, in terms of spending and fiscal and tax policy. What do you what do you think the impact will be uh, on the Canadian dollar uh, over the uh, short term and potentially midterm, uh, assuming that these policies make their way or these policy ideas make their ways into government policy? 
Yeah, and thank you, Scott. I, I think the reality is is that the Canadian dollar, of course, is is driven by much uh, bigger global factors than uh, than anything homegrown. I mean, we can affect it, of course, uh, in in some cases, but generally speaking, the you know. Uh, the the number one driver of the Canadian dollar over time is uh, the U.S. dollar itself. You know, when the U.S. dollar is uh, is rising against other currencies, we we tend to weaken along with uh, with everyone else. And uh, you know, of course, the the next factor o- overall is, uh, is is largely commodity prices. I would say those two factors will probably mostly fight to a draw over the next year. Our official forecast has the Canadian dollar actually slightly strengthening. Over the next 12 months, nothing, uh, you know, nothing beyond one to two percent or so. Um, but overall, our our view is that in a, in a world where the uh, the global economy, uh, the recovery will uh, will strengthen over the next year, uh, commodity prices we believe will remain relatively firm. You know, we're still looking at oil prices of around seventy dollars a barrel, which is positive uh, for the uh, for the Canadian dollar. Uh, those those will uh, be enough to to support a, a very modest increase in in the Canadian dollar, uh, and even though we've been left with a, a status quo, quo result, I think you know what we're seeing today is a very small sigh of relief uh, from uh, from the markets in that there's you know really no uh, no big curveball that's been thrown at them. They've got a little bit more certainty they can uh, they can deal with, and you know basically move on to uh, to. Uh, to greater forces. When we look out longer term, I'm a little less optimistic on on the Canadian dollar until and unless we address some of these competitiveness challenges that both Earl and I have uh, discussed. Uh, you know, and and the focus more that's been more on redistribution rather than growth. I'm I'm concerned that the Canadian dollar will tend to soften over over the medium term. Uh, lo- longer term, I believe sort of an anchor fair value for the Canadian dollar is something in the range of around you know. I, I hate to put a decimal point on it, but close to 77 cents. I would, in other words, somewhere between 75 and 80 cents. I believe is is relatively fair value for the currency. But uh, you know, as I said, unless we address our competitiveness challenges, I think we'll we'll tend to drift a, a little bit below fair value over over the medium term. Right. So you you'd like uh, so while you don't disagree with uh, some of the redistributive uh, policies, you'd like to see some growth and competitiveness policies uh, so that we would ultimately have more to redistribute uh, in in the end, but focus on that side, as opposed to pre-distribution, which is kind of distributing the wealth before you make it, uh, which uh, is something that is kind of like the new math uh, or the statement that this time it's different. Um, but uh, in, we've got a question from one of our uh, BMO client audience members. The housing market has been pretty hot. Uh, do you see some possible changes to the market uh, after the election is over? What are you seeing in terms of uh, any public policy shifts um, or impacts on the housing market coming out of this election? I'll start with Earl. Yeah, well, I, I think that there's been speak of uh, CMHC reducing the, the premiums for its insurance on uh, high mortgage uh, uh, housing or mortgage mortgages. So I, I think that may have on the margin a beneficial effect. In the end, there's three things that impact housing and, and the strength of housing. One is banks' ability to lend, and banks are doing extremely well in their lending. Uh, your interest rates, interest rates are still ultimately extremely low right now, and until uh, they go higher. I think it makes it attractive in tax policy. And there's no um, explicit t- uh, tax policy right now that would impact housing. So I see it continuing as it has. I don't see it necessarily accelerating. 
with the biggest risk to it being a dramatic rise in interest rates, which, you know, if, if that happens, that's a late 2022 story. Great. Thanks, Earl. And uh, Doug, do you have any, the housing uh, market as the broader envelope of affordability issues um, was, you know, pre prevalent. You could, you could sense that, uh, and I, uh, candidates were hearing that on the doorsteps. So it's an important issue during, was an important issue during the election for a lot of people. What do you see the impact coming out of this of some of the uh, proposed uh, policies? So this is one area where I think we actually might see some fundamental change over, over the next uh, year. And, and frankly, if there was any surprise on the economic front, it was some of the uh, some of the policies put forward on, on the campaign trail on the housing side. And again, you know, of course, we have to be mindful that we're dealing with a minority government and we don't know that they're all going to become law. But, uh, you know, the ruling party liberals actually brought in some pretty um, serious changes that the, that they're talking about. You know, some I think can can work and be effective and others probably won't uh, won't do much. But, you know, just as a quick reminder, the uh, the liberals were talking about bringing in a, a flipping tax. You know, if uh, if you sold your house with within a year, they were they were talking about a tax free savings account. Uh, for uh, for first time buyers, they were talking about doing away with blind bidding. They also talked about, which to me was a surprise, uh, was basically banning foreign investors um, or foreign buyers, I should say, for uh, for two years in in the housing market. Uh, that's that's quite a step uh, for the for the liberals. And the, the, you know, there was some uh, some overlap uh, overall on the policy front. At the, at the same time, there were also uh, you know a number of measures that uh, that talked about supporting first time buyers, which you know again I think is just pouring fuel. On already very hot uh, housing market and probably would not would not be effective, uh, but this this is certainly one area to keep a keen eye on because there were a lot of uh, pretty important changes uh, that were uh, were pledged during the, during the campaign. To Earl's point, though, ultimately our our view is that this housing market is not going to be seriously brought to heel until interest rates uh, ultimately go up. That we don't see uh, the Bank of Canada moving on interest rates until late 2022. Um, so I, th you know, I think unless we get some really dramatic, uh, different moves above and beyond what uh, what's been suggested, I uh, we're we're still relatively constructive on on the housing market. How much credence do you uh, uh, how much credence do you pay to those who say that actually the housing crisis uh, is driven by a supply issue and and governments have you know, have to focus on more than just more money going into uh, building housing uh, to try to deal with it. But there are some real impediments to building housing. And, you know, some of that is on the municipal uh, side as well. But um, from a, a, is there much in these platforms that can really tackle the supply issue that seems to be driving a lot of the challenges in the housing market is there uh is it is there you know a significant is there likely to be a significant impact on getting more housing built to try to reduce reduce some of that pressure uh doug so i do not want to downplay the supply issues what whatsoever that that is definitely an important element of of our issue but i, I would argue that it's like we're caught in scissors of uh extraordinarily hot demand on the one side because of extraordinarily low interest rates and very strong population growth. 
and on the other side, we are caught on the other side of the scissors between uh, very, you know, very slow, slow supply response. The reality is, is the federal government cannot do that much on the supply side. You know, in in, in some respects, it's almost like we had a bidding war uh, going on in the in uh, during the election campaign, in which uh, you know, in terms of which party was going to build more houses over the next five to ten years. Uh, the reality is, the federal government does not build many houses. They can't build that uh, that many houses. Really, that's uh, that's mostly at the private sector, and the supply issues really are, you know, more more in the domain of the the provinces and and the municipalities. And it takes time uh, to get supply in the market. So the reality is, is what you know, what can federal government policy do in the short term uh, to affect housing affordability? Really, it, it's it's controlling demand as as best they they can and doing what they can to support uh, the supply side. But you know there is just no magic wand to be waved on the on the supply side. It takes time. It takes hard effort. It's uh, it's not a light switch that can be flipped on or off. Um, you know that's not not to say that there shouldn't be a lot of focus on the supply side. But I I've long made the case that we have to we have to look at both sides when we're dealing with a housing affordability issue as, as severe as we're dealing with right now. Right. Thanks, uh, Doug. Now, Earl, uh, we've touched on. We've touched on Canadian uh, uh, interest rates and potential impact on Canadian rates. Uh, there's a lot of stimulus uh, going into the government stimulus going into the economy in the U.S. as well. And um, where do you see any thoughts on U.S. Uh, rates in the, the in the short and midterm? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very similar situation to Canada, actually, where it's uh, the inflationary dynamic that's going to drive interest rates, whether it's transitory or sustainable. Uh, tomorrow at the, the, the Fed announcement, FOMC meeting, we'll, we'll get some insight into that. You know, And I think the market's a little bit concerned about that. You're seeing some movement in interest rates, whether uh, uh, um, Fed Governor Powell will, will acknowledge that this uh, transitory may last longer uh, than anticipated, which is the path to sustainable because of uh, housing. And wages, right? Both are ex extremely uh, experiencing extreme growth. So our outlook's very similar to Canada. Uh, we think the probability of higher rates is increasing. It'll be driven by higher inflation and, and uh, central banks feeling that they're potentially behind the curve, which accelerates how, how much they uh, increase interest rates and, and not by growth. We are definitely experiencing declining growth, but we're still well above um, normal growth. So I, th I feel uh, comfortable that the economy will be able to, to handle um, higher rates, but it'll be a volatile ride. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Earl. Uh, Doug, uh, another question from uh, um, our audience, and that is on the um, small and medium uh, businesses in Canada, small and medium-sized businesses. Their uh, COVID has been a really tough hit for an awful lot of small businesses in Canada. And as we go back to uh, whatever the new normalized economy is going to be post-COVID, what should government do to help our small businesses prosper in uh, as, as we move back to survive and prosper as we move back to uh, uh, whatever the new normal is going to be? But uh, uh, a late COVID and post-COVID environment. Yeah, and from my perspective, uh, you know, when when we talk about a K-shaped recovery, and by the way, I haven't heard that term in quite some time, but I think it still applies very much. And you know, the best way it applied was uh, was by sector. 
you know, clearly there are a number of sectors of the economy that recovered, not, you know, not only rapidly, but they actually came back even, even stronger uh, than before the pandemic. But then there's whole sections of, of the economy that, you know, are, are still basically flat on the floor or, or struggling uh, to survive. And, and sadly, most of them are heavily concentrated in the, in the small business sector, small and medium-sized sector. And so fundamentally, I, I, per, I think that this is, you know, when we talk about extending uh, COVID support, re- really, this is, this is where the focus has got to be, just to, you know, to get uh, small business uh, through this incredibly difficult episode. I, I believe that that's where uh, the fiscal s- support should be uh, still aimed at at this point. Uh, and then when we're on the other side of it, I, th- I think then that's that's when we can, you know, when the when the dust is finally settled, that's that's when we can start <clears throat> reviewing all the uh, the core levels of of support. I, I you know I would say in general the the tax system actually in in Canada you know arguably to a fault is incredibly supportive of of the small business sector. So uh, you know I don't I don't think that's necessarily an area that that we should be looking at uh, at, at changing. Uh, again, I think we we have to get through this very difficult episode before we talk about uh, restructuring, uh, you know, our kind of support levels for uh, for small and be, uh, medium sized businesses. There wasn't much discussion in this election about trade uh, and the global economy. Um, of course, the toughest question, or one of the toughest questions, we're facing. Uh, in terms of foreign and trade policy is the whole China uh, question. Uh, this is one that dogged the government before uh, and during the election. Um, how do you see the trade environment? And if you're, uh, I've already asked you about your advice to the Minister of Finance, uh, the next Minister of Finance, but uh, your advice to the next Minister of Trade um, Given the challenges with the relationship in China um, and the ongoing, you know, quite protectionist environment in the U.S. and by American uh, and policies, uh, what should the government be focusing on in terms of its trade policy? Where should the priorities be? Uh, Doug? Yeah, it's interesting. If we go to back to the uh, way back to the good old days of uh, two years ago, before the pandemic, of course, uh, you know the biggest issue we were dealing with was first wrapping up uh, uh, the new NAFTA or Cosma, and uh, and and then of course the uh, uh, the brutal trade war that was going on between uh, between the U.S. and and China. And it's interesting in the uh, the new administration in in the U.S. Uh, to to some extent. You know, things really haven't changed that much on on the trade front. We're still dealing with a relatively protectionist, different, you know, uh, different sounding protectionism from uh, from the Biden administration. But still, you know, I would I would say relatively protectionist, and and still, uh, you know, pretty much as uh, as as tough on on China and in, in in a different form than the Trump administration was. Um, you know, what, what would I recommend to, uh, to Canada's trade minister? I, I, I think first and foremost, we, uh, you know, we have to deal with our, uh, our, our most important relationship and that's, uh, that's with the U S we have to, you know, do what we can to, uh, to, you know, to make sure that Canada isn't, um, untowardly affected by, uh, by the Buy American proposals, uh, on China. That's, you know, as, as you said, uh, barely, barely came up in the, in the campaign that, uh, at all, I do think we uh, we 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 have to have uh, I would say almost a reset on that front. We have to have a complete rethink 
Um, and, and I think it's, uh, we, we have to be in sync with, uh, with our allies on, on that front. Uh, you know, we, we can't, uh, we can't go this alone. I, I, I think we, we basically have to be largely in tune with our major allies and, in, in, uh, you know, how we approach uh, China in, in the years ahead. Um, you know, obviously there are huge shifts going on in China right now. I would say if, uh, you know, if you were to summarize it in, in a neat sentence, uh, you know, effectively the pendulum is, is shifting in, in China to, you know, to much more of a, I guess I would call it a command economy. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost sector by sector, uh, that, uh, uh, that the president is, is, is going through and, uh, you know, enforcing his, his, his will on, uh, so, uh, you know, we're, 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 we are dealing with uh, with a very different world than uh, than we thought we were just as recently as a, as a few years uh, years back. Great, thank you, thank you. Um, earlier, uh, Earl mentioned uh, infrastructure as as being uh, a key to um, uh, the future prosperity and competitiveness, and uh, one key area of infrastructure that did up during the election is broadband connectivity in the regions uh, for uh, uh, people regardless of where they live in Canada for citizens and businesses to compete. The need for digital connectivity uh, is extremely important in, and uh, from when you say infrastructure uh, and investments in infrastructure are you including digital infrastructure is the kinds of investments that governments and the, the government now, the newly elected uh, uh, Justin Trudeau Liberal government, ought to focus on? I would say without a doubt. And, and the reason why I say that, that's an investment in our people. There's a lot of people in the rural areas who had difficulties edu on, with education just because they didn't have access to the schools because their technology wasn't up, up to date. So I, th I think that's a fundamental area of, of investment to ensure that we have the education and the talent pool that's properly educated to, to take advantage of the other initiatives to increase productivity. So without a doubt, I, I would agree that's part of the infrastructure pool. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, we, uh, I think uh, time marches on. We've got, uh, I think, for, uh, I think we're, we're nearing uh, the end of our allotted time, but I'd like to turn things over to uh, both Earl and Doug to uh, um, uh, give a little more clarity from where they're sitting uh, to our BMO clients uh, uh, on uh, the, the uh, expected, you know, in the coming weeks uh, and the first budget. We touched on this earlier, but um, anything to expect on the tax uh, side, um, looking at party platforms, any thoughts of uh, tax, uh, both directionally, but any specific uh, measures that uh, we ought to be mindful of uh, for ourselves, for our clients, um, and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in your views on some of those proposals and uh, their potential impact on uh, both business and citizens uh, develop, you know, building wealth here in Canada. 
And uh, I'll start off with Earl on this one and then move on to Doug for that. So this is also a bit of an opportunity to uh, to wrap up and uh, uh, our conversation uh, this morning. So, Earl. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Doug speak to specifics, but I definitely do expect uh, higher taxes. You know, Ray Agency said, you know, you got to keep the fiscal house in order. And how do you do that? It's increasing taxes. Uh, and I, I think it'll be both personal and, and corporate. Um, but uh, I'm an eternal optimist. I, I think we're in exciting times. I think uh, it's definitely turbulence out there, but that's what you get when you're going through a change in weather patterns. But uh, I see blue skies ahead, and I, I love being Canadian, love being a BMO employee, and uh, I, I think the future is uh, we're in good, we'll be in good hands. I think on my 15-second uh, elevator speech, I'd say, you know, even though we've, you know, Ultimately, got uh, you know yet a, yet another government facing us. Uh, we we would not change our our economic forecast based on uh, on last night's results. We're we're still looking at roughly five percent growth in Canada this year and about four and a half percent next year. We wouldn't change our view on on when interest rates are likely to rise. We think that happens in the fourth quarter of next year. Uh, we didn't talk much about specific tax changes. I'd I'd actually rather not. Uh, delve in this specific because uh, I, I think to some extent it's entirely speculative when we're we're dealing with minority governments. I would I would just uh, urge people to look at the uh, the, the policy pro uh, proposals of, of both the Liberals and the and the NEP party who are likely to be their dance partner, and just see where there there is overlap. Um, you know I think that by talking about specific uh, tax taxes, it's almost as if we're opening the door to them. And uh, my my own view is you know in anything that can possibly frustrate this recovery is not welcome at this point. And I do view that tax increases are just not uh, a welcome addition to uh, to the recovery at at this point. Uh, but certainly, when you know when you look at the long laundry list of potential tax increases that the NDP have proposed, there's probably going to be one or two that the Liberals will agree to to get their acquiescence on uh, on the next budget. And I think I'll just leave yeah. it at that, Scott. Thank you. Great stuff. Yeah, and I, I and thank. Thank you very much, uh, Doug. Thank you, Doug, and and uh, thank you, Earl, and most importantly, thank you to our BMO clients for participating this morning. Uh, BMO understands full well uh, the importance of elections, democratic participation, uh, and the Im importance of the economic policy that is brought forward during these elections. We will, uh, across BMO, from BMO Capital Markets, BMO Global Asset Management, BMO Economics, uh, be sifting through both the, the data and the decisions in the coming weeks uh, to keep our eye on the ball um, on behalf of all our clients in Canada, both ranging from, from families, and, and small, medium enterprises, businesses of, of all size. Uh, BMO uh, has your back, and we are looking forward to uh, working with you in the future as you chart your family's course and your business's course uh, during an interesting political period with a lot of moving parts. Uh, BMO is is here for you. We are here to help and we're working as a purpose-driven organization to grow the good in business and in the people and the communities we serve. And I want to thank our BMO clients for participating 
today in this uh, important discussion. And we're looking forward to uh, deepening our partnership with you as we move forward. Canada uh, emerges from this election uh, as, again, uh, reaffirming we are a fantastic country with huge potential and opportunities. And uh, BMO is very proud of uh, uh, the role that we play, both BMO and also broadly Canadian banks, the financial sector, in helping drive prosperity uh, and growth uh, that is inclusive and sustainable for all Canadians. So thank you very much for your participation in the conversation today and uh, all the best in the coming hours, days, and weeks as we continue to view and consider uh, the impact of election 2021 in Canada. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.